There's no greater threat to the critics and cynics and fear mongers than those of us who are willing to fall because we have learned how to rise. With skin knees and bruised hearts, we choose owning our stories of struggle over hiding, over hustling, over pretending. When we deny our stories, they define us. When we run from struggle, we are never free. So we turn towards truth and look it in the eye. We craft love from heartbreak, compassion from shame, grace from disappointment, courage from failure. Showing up is our power. Story is our way home. Truth is our song. We are the brave and brokenhearted. We are rising strong. I hate being vulnerable. It's terrifying letting go of all of those negative emotions you work so hard to hide. Every day, at some point, I have to force down negative emotions at the thought that someone might see and know that I am not the strong person I show myself to be, that I am weak and I am struggling. I hate being vulnerable. Intel's opening up to someone and sharing all those dirty little secrets that you seek desperately to hide. Being raw with someone. But it also sounds beautiful to be able to find someone that you can be vulnerable with, that trust, that raw, unadulterated trust. How do you know if you found the right person? Can you know? It is terrifyingly beautiful. I crave it. I fear it. Whatever I share could be used against me. Someone could laugh in my face or mock my pain or kick my dreams in the dust or never speak to me again. I could be rejected. Or I could be accepted. I could be loved, respected, understood. It's terrifying. It's beautiful. Thanks so much, April. That right there, folks, is the plain truth about this very challenging subject called vulnerability. And today we are launching a brand new series that's a takeoff of a woman named Brene Brown's brand new book called Rising Strong. I highly recommend this book to you. Anyone read the book already? Yeah. Hopefully some more hands are going up throughout this series. Highly recommend this book. And she's written several books before Rising Strong. So today to kick this series off, we're going to lay what I think is some critical foundation for the whole series from much of her previous work on this subject of vulnerability. Stuff that we're going to build on week by week by week up ahead. Uh, I do have to say that 
Uh, it's at least comical to me, maybe not to you, but it's very comical to me that I'm talking about vulnerability on opening weekend of big game rifle hunting season. Is that funny to anyone else besides uh, me? Strikes me as being quite funny. It wasn't by design, just the way the calendar shook out. And the starting place, I think, when it comes to vulnerability is that there's something incredibly powerful that happens when you and I lean into, lean hard into the discomfort, and you know this discomfort that wells up inside of us every single time we step out and we let our real selves be seen. When we let people see the person who we really are. Test of vulnerability right here, right now. How many of you at one point or another in your life have been afraid to show up and let the real you be seen? My hand is the first one up. You've been afraid to show up and let the you real, yeah, yeah, hands all over the room. That's exactly right. And what's also true is that for most people, showing up and letting the you real be seen is an extreme rarity. Honestly, it hardly ever happens. And it was the case for me. It hardly ever happened with me. Sometime back, I knew I needed, though, to get to that place. I knew I needed to get to the place where I could show up, where I could let the real me be seen. And so one of the first things that I knew to do on this journey around vulnerability is to enlist the help of a trusted Christian counselor friend who could help me sort this stuff out inside of here. And it all started in this place when I knew that I needed to work on being more vulnerable, getting more vulnerable, when I felt like I couldn't share how sad or how hurt or how empty my soul felt or how far away God felt with some of the people who were supposed to be the very closest to me. I just couldn't get there. For one reason or another reason, I couldn't get there at all. And when I got to that place, I said, oh, I think I have a vulnerability deficiency here. That's when I knew I had a problem. And I wanted to, at least with part of me, wanted to push back against that shortfall, that deficiency. I wanted to overcome that. I wanted to live out Brene Brown's definition of vulnerability. Here it is. It's the willingness to show up and be seen with no guarantee of outcome. That's who I wanted to be. That's who I want to become. Because see, what's true about me, this might be true of you as well, is that I cared way too much about outcomes. I cared way too much about what people thought and what people think of me to actually tell, to actually be vulnerable enough to tell anyone everything that was collapsing inside of my soul, in my mind, in my heart. The risk was just too great. After all, aren't I supposed to have it all together? Now, part of the reason for my lack of vulnerability is family background. I won't lay it all on them, but it's part of the reason for my lack of vulnerability. I don't come from a long line of highly vulnerable people. Anyone else with me in this? I don't come from a long line of highly vulnerable people. It's not in our family nature. So with that as sort of the backdrop, I called this exceptional Christian counselor friend of mine. Bob is his name. He's from Billings. And I said, hey, Bob, I need some help with some stuff. Will you help me? And you know what he said? He said, yeah, you sure do need some help. He knew a little bit about what was going on in my world. He graciously, I said, oh, thanks, Bob. He said, yeah, you better come and see me. And so I did. And frankly, that was a call that I never anticipated needing to make in my entire life. My mantra had been, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. But as is very often the case, maybe with you as well, there comes this day where you wake up and you're like, oh, crap, I'm not fine. All is not well inside of here. I better 
press into this. And so I drove myself to Billings and I walked myself into Bob's office. I plopped down on Bob's couch. Yes, he does have a couch. And I start more of a love seat, but you know, couchy at least. And I started to unzip my soul right there in his office. And after we dumped out all this stuff, he started to help me sort it all out. And I'm telling you the truth, guys, this was torturous for me. Like putting a spoon into my eyeball would have been an easier thing to do. Not kidding. And there'd be these points in Bob and my conversations, which by the way, a conversation, that's what counseling is. I think people have weird ideas about what goes on behind counselor's office doors. But I just want to tell you, it's just a conversation. It goes something like this. Bob asks me a question. I answer his question. Bob feeds back to my answer. Often he presses me for further clarity around my answer. It really is the furthest thing from weird unless you find conversation around deep personal stuff. Weird, well then it might be for you, but it's just a conversation. And there'd be these points in Bob and my conversations when uh, if you've ever had a personal conversation with me, you might have noticed that I can be somewhat expressive with my face. Like often I'll grimace at something that's difficult or I'll light up at something that lights me up or I'll scrunch my forehead and my eyes up at something that causes me to think deeply, causes me consternation about something. And so there'd be these times when Bob would ask me a question and I'd answer, but when I answered, I'd have this like grimace on my face. And when I did, he'd just stop me dead in my track. Wait just a minute. And he'd point at my face and he'd go, what's that? all about what's going on there this contorted look on my face and every time he did that or rather every time I did that it was like a cue to both of us that there was something deeper going on than what I had just chosen to tell him now I really wanted in those moments just to skip right by the contorted face moment just keep right on talking at the level that I had been previously talking about but Bob never let me never ever let me off the hook. And so instead of what was, instead of ignoring what was going on just under the surface, he'd help me. This is something we talk about around here. He helped me peel the onion a bit where I'd tear away one layer and then he'd make me tear away another layer and then another layer. And I'm here to tell you, I hated it. And hate is a really strong word. I know that's why I'm using it. I hated it. It was like painful to me, but I did it. I'm still in the process of doing that with Bob. And then after all those layers were peeled away, we got down to the thing that we needed to get down to. Bob would say that, and he'd often point that right there. That's the thing that we need to be talking about right here. And so there it was out in the open. We'd roll up our sleeves on whatever that thing was, like seven or 10 or 20 or even 50 layers below the surface that was causing me to grimace. And it was right now on the surface and it could be taken up and it could be worked with. And I want to be real candid with every single one of you here today that vulnerability isn't for everyone. Honestly, it's not. And this vulnerability deal, you get to choose. You get to decide whether you're going to live a life of vulnerability or not. You get to ask yourself, am I going to live that way? Am I going to show up and really, truly be seen, really, truly be me with no guarantee of outcome or am I not? That's the choice that we all get to make. 
And a guy named Teddy Roosevelt, in a quote that I never ever thought had anything to do with vulnerability, captures, at least for me in an almost magical kind of way, the image of what it looks like to live vulnerably. You've probably heard this quote before. Let me read it to you. It is not the critic who counts, says Roosevelt. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst If he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. And that right there is what it is to be vulnerable. It's you and it's me out in the middle of the arena. And please don't misunderstand me. The arena isn't like a literal arena. See, your arena could be your bedroom with your spouse. Your arena could be your office with your coworkers. Your arena might be your classroom with your peers, your backyard with your neighbors, the athletic field or court with your teammates. Your arena, see, is any place where you show up and you put your whole self out there, where you show up and you're seen for the person who you really, truly are at your core. You're real. You're authentic, you're seen, and you don't have any control over the outcome. You're just you, period. Strengths, weaknesses, good, bad, up, down, even sideways sometimes, you're just you. You on full display. And when that's the way that you've decided to live your life, Well, then see, there's nothing in your control when it comes to how people evaluate you, how they measure you, what they think about you, not one. And in order for you to live that vulnerably, here's what you have to do. You have to actually be courageous. You have to be an incredibly courageous person to walk out a life of vulnerability. And I love this word courage. It comes from the Latin word core, which means heart. Which means that in order for you and me to be vulnerable, to live vulnerably, we're required to live our lives and tell our stories with our entire heart, with our entire being, with the courage to show up and be seen, imperfections and all. No guarantee whatsoever of how it's going to go. You and I living vulnerably... You and I showing up and being seen with no guarantee of the outcome, it means that you let go every single day. You let go of who you think you need to be in order to show up and be the person who you really are. You and me, living vulnerably, is stepping out into the arena, whatever your arena is, courageously. Your whole story coming from your whole heart. No masks, no facades, no nothing, just you. And get this, please, you're never more vulnerable than when you love somebody. You've felt this, I know. You've experienced this, I know. Every single one of us has. You're never more vulnerable than when you love somebody. Why? 
You know this too, because the person who you love, they might leave us tomorrow. Now they might be loyal to us our entire lives, but they might just up and abandon us. Which means that nothing leaves us more emotionally exposed than loving someone else with our entire selves, giving ourselves fully and completely to someone else. But vulnerability is also much more than loving someone. Vulnerability also looks like you sharing an unpopular opinion. Vulnerability looks like you standing up for yourself. Vulnerability might look like for you to stand up for yourself. It might look like you asking for help. It might look like you saying no. It might look like you starting your own business. It might look like you initiating sex with your spouse. It might look like you saying I love you, not knowing if you're going to be loved back. Vulnerability for you might look like getting pregnant after you've had a bunch of miscarriages. Vulnerability is you waiting for biopsy results to come back that dreaded phone call. Vulnerability is you admitting that you're afraid. Vulnerability is you stepping up to the plate after a whole series of strikeouts and being willing to get back in the game. Vulnerability for you, it might look like laying off employees. Vulnerability for you might look like you presenting your dream to the world and getting no response. Vulnerability looks like a whole bunch of different things. You in the middle of the arena, your full self, full heart, courageously, entirely on display for all of the world. And in the biblical book of John, the fourth book in the newer Testament of the Bible, we discover the story of a woman who knows everything that it is and everything that it looks like and everything that it feels like to live vulnerably and courageously. And her name is Mary. Lots and lots of you know the story, I'm sure. And we use a lot of different words to describe what's going on in the story about Mary. And today, I'd invite us to add the word vulnerable to the vocabulary of how we describe what's going on here in the story of Mary. John chapter 12, starting in verse one. Here's what the Bible says. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead, and a dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served. Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary, here we go, she took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with this fragrance. And folks, you talk about showing up and being seen without any guarantee of outcome. Here it is. Right? It's, a, it's a dinner party. A dinner party being held in the honor of Jesus Christ. It might have been at Martha's home. It might not have been. We don't know. The guests are all cool people who want to be there to honor it. For crying out loud, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. That's a cool dinner party guest, isn't it? Guy's been dead and he's back. Whoa. And Mary, in the middle of this dinner party, picture this, she's moved. She's incredibly moved, like at the level of her soul. And she walks out this act that's all about love and devotion and honor of and to and because of Jesus. She's so moved that she takes this soda can-sized jar of perfume. Picture it. Pop can-sized jar of perfume. It's called nard. 
I know that sounds like nothing that you would, like it's not appealing, is it? We're crying out, oh, they've got a serious branding issue with that product. No one's going to the perfume counter. Can I have some nard, please? Like, what? Sounds gross, but it wasn't. It was amazing, beautiful stuff. The scent, you know what it is? Gladiolas. Nard is the scent of gladiolas. It's red, it's lovely stuff. And Mary, she's so moved at the level of her soul that she breaks the stopper seal atop the alabaster vase and she dumps and she smears and she pours this stuff all over Jesus. All 12 ounces of it covers him. And there's so much of it that the whole house is filled with the scent of gladiolas. Some of you are imagining this right now. And this is shocking. It is shocking to everybody. No one at the party expected this to go down. And they're going like, a whole jar? The entire thing? And this isn't just the cheap stuff either. This is the equivalent, by the way, of like 12,000 of our today dollars. $12,000. And they're all going like, where did she get that kind of money? Was this some family heirloom? What in the world, Mary, are you doing? But it's too late. Way too late. You're not going to get that stuff back in the jar. And just when you think this can't get any more wild and crazy and unthinkable, Mary, she kneels down and she lets her hair down. It would have been up, but she lets it down, a custom that she would have only undertaken with her husband in that culture. She lets it down in the presence of Jesus and she uses her hair to dry the nard that's running onto Jesus' feet. Uses her, picture this, ladies. Gentlemen, you can picture it too if you'd like. Hair wiping Jesus' feet. And this is like a woe kind of moment, isn't it? She throws caution to the wind. Mary, she goes for broke. She does the thing that she's compelled at the level of her soul to go do. She shows up. She's seen, fully seen for who she is, what's going on inside of her. She loves Jesus that much. She is that devoted to Jesus. Her honor of him is like off the charts. Now, go with me and set yourself into Mary's shoes. And imagine yourself at that dinner party and you imagine yourself in that moment and you're moved and you know where the jar of nard is and you're moved. And here's the question. What's the excuse that you and I are most likely to use for why we don't do the thing that Mary did with the nard and the jar and the hair and the wiping of the feet? What's our excuse? What is our excuse for why we, you and I, wouldn't show up and wouldn't be seen like Mary was seen, like she stepped out and walked out, no guarantee of outcome? What's our excuse? I'd offer it's this really nasty little word. It might have come to mind for you, but it's this little word called judgment, isn't it? Did you think of that? It's this little word called judgment. That's the reason why if I'm in Mary's shoes, that's why I most likely wouldn't do the thing that Mary did. Because if I'm her, I'm going, what's everyone gonna think? And none of us want to be judged. None of us do. People looking down their noses at us. And guys, 
The judgment deal, the fear of judgment, it stops us. It freezes us in our tracks so often, doesn't it? Judgment just has that power over us. Our fear of being judged keeps us from doing so many things that God would have us to do so much of the time, but we don't do it because it requires us putting ourselves all the way out there, showing up, being seen, being vulnerable. And so many of us, we just go, I'm not going there because there's no guarantee of how that's gonna go. If I, if I do that, it might go badly. And you know where, I, I didn't write about this, but I'm gonna vamp here for a moment if you'll, that okay with you? I think we're, afraid, like you really have a vote, right? You're like, yeah, just, just go, just go. I think the reason we're so afraid of the judgment that we get from other people, because we do it, don't we? All of us, every moment of every single day, we're making these split-second judgmental decisions about everything going on around us. We're just calling it like blink fast. Good, bad, right, wrong, pretty, ugly. And we're judging all the time. And so we go, well, if I do it all the time, so is everybody else. Why would I subject myself to that? I'm just not gonna go there. Which there's probably a lesson in there somewhere about what we do with judgment. Do we need to put it down? Do we need to stop the blink responses all the time, making those calls like we so often do? I do. Anyway, this judgment deal stops us dead in our tracks because it requires of us to put ourselves out there showing up, being seen, being vulnerable, and we don't like the odds. We're scared of how that's gonna turn out. And I'll bet I'm not the only person in this room who holds back from doing something I know I should do for fear of judgment. We do this all the time. All of us do this all the time. It happened to me this week, as a matter of fact. I'm writing a sermon about being vulnerable. And it ha- it's like right here in my face. The other day I felt strongly compelled to send an email to a good friend of mine. An email that would express some deeply held, very, very, hear me please, positive sentiments around some very cool ministry stuff that my friend is a part of. I wanted to tell my friend how much I was moved by all the ways he's given his life to ministry, how amazing I think what he's doing with his life is, how I hoped that someday my life would count like his does. And it was kind of a forward email, honestly. It was an email that would have been filled with forward-sounding sentiments from my heart to his heart. It required of me that I put myself out there declaring that to him. And so I write this email and I get all done with it and I'm going like, wow, that's a great email if I do say so myself. And I got to the end and I almost didn't send it. Why? Because I was worried. I was worried that when my friend got that email, he would judge me for saying some of the things, positive things. I wasn't criticizing. I was like, dude, you're awesome. That's basically what I was saying. Dude, you're awesome. I love what you're about. But I was worried that he would judge me for saying some of the things that I wrote in that email. That the forwardness of my emotion, the forwardness of my sentiments would be judged by him. And so I'm staring at this email, my finger hovering over the send button. And I had to sort of catch myself and go, wait just a minute, wait just a minute. This is crazy for me not to send that email. This is crazy for me even to think about not sending this email. Doggone it, I'm sending this email. I'm showing up and I'm gonna be seen for the real me without any guarantees of how that's gonna go. 
bam, I press the send button, off it goes. And you know, once it's gone, you can't get it back, can you? Right? It's just gone. And here's the rest of the story. I sent that email early last week. And you know what? I haven't heard a word from my friend. Not a single word in response. Like the jury's still out. I guess I'll find out someday what he thinks. And part of the reason that I'm drawn to the story of Mary, her vulnerability, is because her fear of judgment does not keep her from doing the thing that she knows that she should do. Isn't that beautiful? Her fear of judgment does not keep her from doing the thing that she knows that she should do. She just steps up and steps out and she's seen in this huge way and she has absolutely no idea what's gonna happen as a result of this extravagant action on her part. But then I got to thinking and I thought, oh my goodness. This isn't the first time that Mary's taken a walk on the vulnerable side. You recall another time? Dig deep into your Newer Testament memory banks. It's another dinner party. Similar guest list. Jesus is there. Sister Martha is hosting. Martha's bustling all over the place, totally caught up in whipping up this giant meal for all of her guests. And what in the world is Mary doing? Luke chapter 10, it's not on the screens, I'll just read it to you. Mary, same Mary, sat at the Lord's feet, sat at Jesus' feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits there while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. Mary gets this. Mary gets everything that it is and everything that it means to be vulnerable. She's entirely willing to show up and be seen, to risk the judgment, risk a safe outcome in order to be the person who she really is at the core of herself. And this is fantastic. Because Martha's whining to Jesus doesn't phase Mary in the least. Right? The text does not record. And Mary felt guilty for not helping Martha, so she jumped up and began to help. No, it doesn't go there. Mary couldn't care less about the outcome. She could not care less. She's doing the thing she believes she is supposed to be doing in that moment, which is to simply sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him. And that's exactly why she's not phased at all when Judas, oh boy, here we go, when his judgment falls hard on her for this extravagant act of love and devotion and honor in John 12. Check it out, starting in verse four. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray Jesus, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. Can you hear his voice? It should have been sold, the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. I love this. It's like a big parenthesis here. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. What a picnic he is. The very close cousin to judgment is this nasty, gnarly little word. You know what? Shame. A very close cousin to the word judgment is this nasty, gnarly word, shame. And that's exactly what Judas does to Mary right there. Right on the pages of scripture and look, we're talking about this shaming thing that happened to Mary a couple of thousand years ago. She gets shamed. And it's a word that gets bandied about a lot in our culture. Its meaning, however, is often elusive, but I've taken to this meaning of the word shame. 
This definition, it's nothing more, nothing less than public guilt. That's what shame is. Shame is public guilt. Guilt that's put on public display. Guilt called to all of the world's attention. Hey, look here. Can you believe what she did? Can you believe what they did? Can you believe what he did? Look here. And that's exactly the thing that Judas does to Mary, this beautiful act of love and honor and devotion, and he shames her. And folks, Christian shame is just the worst. It is just the worst because it's always couched in spiritual terms. It's a thing that Judas does to Mary. Oh, Mary, you're sure screwed up there pouring that expensive perfume on Jesus. What you should have done, right? That's how it always goes. What you should have done is sold it. Give the money to the poor. That's what the better, more mature follower of Jesus would have done. You sure screwed that up, Mary. Public guilt. And it's nasty, folks. It is nasty and it is not of the Lord. And it is so much a part of our culture, both in the big C church and outside the church. Sometimes we don't even recognize it. It's just there. And when we put ourselves out there, when we show up and we're seen with no guarantee of outcome, when we're vulnerable, sometimes we're gonna get shamed. It's gonna happen. Sometimes we're gonna be judged. It's gonna happen. And here's the temptation. When we're shamed, when we're judged, when both perhaps happens, our natural instinctual reaction is to just shrink up, isn't it? You've felt this. You're like, geez, not putting myself out there like that anymore. That really hurt. I'm just gonna step back. I'm just gonna shut down. I'm just gonna numb all the stuff in here. Here's the thing about numbing. Anytime you numb the the bad stuff, the difficult stuff, you know what goes right with it? All the good stuff does too. Everything just gets numbed completely out. I'm gonna be less courageous. I'm gonna make sure that every step is perfectly assured of before I ever take one because I don't want what happened to me to happen again. I don't want the same thing that happened to Mary to happen to me. Often when it comes to judgment and shame, you know one of the first things instinctually some of us do is we blame. You familiar with this? Yeah, it's all their fault. It's all their fault. If only they wouldn't have. They made me. We blame. We try to discharge the pain and the discomfort that comes with shame and judgment anytime it lands on us. Almost instinctually, it's what happened. We try to perfect. Like I'm just gonna be perfect. I'm just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Never going to let anybody see me sweat. I'm just going to get this right every single time. I'm going to be something that I know I'm not. I'm going to pretend. Those are the instinctual reactions to shame and judgment. But here's the thing my ask of you is don't. Please. Please. Don't. Don't withdraw. Don't shrink up. Don't step back. Don't shut off. Don't numb. Don't be less courageous. Don't make everything perfectly certain. Don't blame. Don't try to be something that you're not. Don't pretend. Instead, just put yourself more and more and more out there. It's much easier said than done, I promise. But just keep putting yourself out there. Let yourself be seen. Be more vulnerable. No guarantee of outcomes whatsoever. No guarantee of outcomes whatsoever except one. You've got one guarantee of one outcome. You want this one? You notice what Jesus says to Judas when he shames Mary about the whole nard anointing extravaganza hair wiping the whole thing? You notice what Jesus says to Judas? Here it is. 
leave her alone. Whoa. Leave her alone. In other words, Jesus says, hey, Judas, don't you dare go laying your judgment. Don't you dare go laying your shame tactics on her. Don't you dare. And so you know what we take away from this? When you and I go live this vulnerability deal out, when we show up and when we're seen, when we're really who we are with no guarantee of outcome, Jesus has got your back. Jesus has got your back. And that's an outcome that comes with a whole, whole bunch of certainty. Because I'm here today to tell you, it doesn't get any more safe than Jesus Christ himself having your back. Leave her alone. Leave him alone. That's my son, Jesus says of you. That's my daughter, Jesus says of you. Leave them alone. I invite you to take your stuff and set it aside. I invite you to move into a posture of prayer and listening to the Lord, reflecting with him about the things that we've been talking about together today. And maybe you've got your own host of business that you need to do with the Lord. And if that's you, I just invite you to do that. Use this time however you'd like to. But I've got three suggestions of some areas that the Lord might be wanting to press in with you about today. The first one's this. Would you just inquire of the Lord? Do you have something to say to me, Lord, about my vulnerability index? Lord, do you have something to say to me today about my vulnerability index? Lord, how vulnerable am I really? And maybe you just inquire of the Lord if your vulnerability index is pretty low. Lord, what's it look like for me to increase that? Lord, what do you got to do in my heart, in my soul to build some courage up in me so that I can put myself out there, my real self, to show up and be seen with no guarantee of outcome? And you just got to be honest with the Lord and say, Lord, yeah, I want to get there, but you're going to have to do some stuff first. Maybe you just interact with him about what that stuff is and what that looks like and ask him to do it. God, would you please? The next place this sort of naturally goes is Perhaps the Lord has something to say to you today about judgment and shame. Maybe you're a person on one hand who's used judgment and shame with people in your life. Honestly, we've all done it. You're not alone. And then maybe the other side of the coin for you is that judgment and shame has been used on you maybe for some extended period of time. And either way, whether it's been used on you or you've used it on others, that is not God's heart for anyone. No one. It's not of him. 
maybe you just either side say, Lord, help me set this down. I don't want to use judgment and shame. I want to be all done with that. And Jesus, I desperately need some healing because that judgment and shame that's fallen down on me for years and years and years perhaps has torn me up and I need you, Jesus, to heal that up. thing is that Jesus is enough. He's enough. And you don't have to wonder like, well, can Jesus handle this? Can Jesus do this? Is he capable? It's not even on the radar. He's enough. And you just tell him, Jesus, would you please want to be all done with the judgment and shame deal? I want to be all done with the instantaneous judgments that thousands of them every single day. I just want to be done with those. Because I want to see with your eyes and I want to hear with your ears. And when I'm judging stuff like that, I miss it every time. And then just one more for you. Maybe some of you are here today and you hear all this vulnerability talk and you're going like, get me out of here. But could I just ask, humbly ask, that instead of you repelling from all of this, that would you just consider that the Lord may have something for you in all this? And that would you just open your heart up in particular in these weeks and say, Lord, what is it exactly that you want to do in me around vulnerability? But then could I press you and could I say, don't just think about you. Would you think like one layer out from you? Think about someone in your world. Ask the Lord to bring someone to mind from your world who you think is in need or might want to take this up with you. We've all got a person. We've all got a couple of people, actually. And then maybe this week, like tomorrow, you go put this vulnerability stuff right to work and you just put yourself out there with them, get real vulnerable with them and go, hey, you know what? God's been working on a bunch of us around journey, this subject of vulnerability. Come and join me. Let's walk this road together. That person might not even know Jesus. That's okay. You could tell them, you could tip them off that next Sunday we're talking about worthiness. Worthiness. And who in the world doesn't need a worthiness calibration every now and then? And just say, why don't you come with me? We'll do this together. And maybe in this time you just commit, not to me, don't commit to me, commit to the Lord that you're going to press into this vulnerability stuff through this run of messages. You're going to be open to inviting some folks from your world. You're going to ask the Lord, Lord, who is it that you want me to invite? A person who would want to take this stuff up with you. Oh God, we thank you from the depths of our being that we're fearfully and wonderfully made in your glorious image. 
your imago Dei, the image of you yourself, God, is stamped on every single one of us. And part of the magnificence of that imprint of you on us, God, is this whole vulnerability thing. You created us from the very beginning of time to be vulnerable with each other, to be vulnerable with you, to put ourselves out there, no concern of outcome, to just be who we are, who you made us to be. And yet, sadly, God, you know the story. Sin screwed all of that up. It's tainted, wrecked, smudged. And so instead of putting ourselves out there, God, we cower and we shrink back. And so many of us, we live in the shadows because we don't want anybody to see the real us. And God, what we know is that breaks your heart. It's tragedy to you. And so God, here's the deal. We're asking you to come and we're asking you to meet us and do the thing that only you can do. We can't just decide that we're going to be more vulnerable. Never going to work. But we ask God that you would show up and that you would do this. That you would move across our lives, across our families, across our church community, across our wider community. And that we wouldn't be people who live in the shadows anymore. We'd be out there with you in your full light, your full image on full display in us and through us. And that that reflection of you would actually point people to you and your glory and your kingdom and your fame. That's our covenant with you, God. We ask that you would meet us in this moment, please.